Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We are going to be looking this morning at the last meal of Jesus Christ. The last meal that Jesus would eat. Before we get there, I want to tell you about a fascination that I have. I have a fascination with people who are about to be executed for their crimes. Those who are in death row and who have passed all of their appeals and know that they are going to die a week from next Tuesday intrigues me. I think it intrigues me because they are going to have opportunity to visit with their family one last time and say goodbye. They will have an opportunity to write write their very last communication to their family or friends or to the world at large. They will be allowed to request and enjoy their final meal. Whatever it is they want, they will request and choose that. They will have an opportunity to say their final words before they pass away. And I'm sure that many of those who face these situations think much and hard about what's going to take place. Who are the people that I really want to see before I die? What are the things that I I really want to eat? What is my last words out of my mouth going to be? And you can be assured that whenever a headline is in the paper that says so-and-so executed, you know, in Texas, where they're executing many more than any other place, you can be sure that I'm reading that article because I want to know just what people are thinking right before they die as they they think about passing the, the precipice beyond to go... Go into the afterlife. What is it the things that they're thinking of? Who are they talking with? What did they eat? What were their final words? Well, in our text this morning, we will find Jesus gathering His disciples together for His final meal and really in many ways His last formal teaching with them before He would be executed upon a cross. Jesus will eat His last meal. He will say His goodbyes to His disciples. Teach them one last time. And so important, and so many things did Jesus say at this time that the Gospel of John devotes 20% of the whole Gospel to this evening. But a few hours covers chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 in the Gospel of John. Now Matthew uses just a mere 14 verses. Not to say that everything he taught wasn't important, but to say that that Matthew distills it down to what is the most crucial elements of his last meal that he had with his disciples. And this morning, appropriately, my message entitled, His Final Meal. I want to give you three characteristics of his final meal. The first characteristic is this, that his last meal was the Passover. It was Passover. Look at verse 17. We read right there. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread... The disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? The Passover is a yearly feast that the Jewish people celebrated. They celebrate it in biblical times and they continue to celebrate it up through today. Primarily, the Passover is a feast of remembrance. It's a time in which the Jewish people were to remember how God delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. Thinking about a comparison, it's a bit like our 4th of July. It's like our Independence Day. But you know what? It's much bigger. 
It's much bigger than our Independence Day because it was so significant. The Jewish people celebrated this, that they started their calendar in the month in which they were delivered out of Israel. The first month in the Jewish calendar is the month of Nisan. And that is the month in which they were delivered out of Israel. It's kind of the the nation coming forth, being birthed. That's what took place in our nation, July 4th, 1776, when our founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence. We are being independent from this time on. Away with England, we are on our own. That's what took place in the Passover. So it took place in Exodus chapter 12. You can read about it. The Jewish people were given very explicit directions by God into how to celebrate the Passover. On the 14th day of the first month of the year, the Passover lamb was to be slaughtered. Its blood was to be taken and put on the the doorposts of the houses. By this action, the Hebrew people were spared when the the Lord came through all of Egypt to destroy the Egyptians, the firstborn of the Egyptians. But when he saw the blood, he would pass over the Jewish house and thereby coming with the name, the Passover. Now when this lamb was cooked, there's explicit directions. It's supposed to be roasted with fire. If any of it wasn't eaten on that night of the Passover, it had to be burned up. No doggy bags to take home from the Passover meal. It's all to be consumed. Furthermore, the Passover was to be eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. You can read about all that. Exodus chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. So when the disciples here ask, in verse 17, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? It was a good question. It was the 14th of Nisan. Many pilgrims were swarming into Jerusalem intent upon celebrating the Passover. And the question was, well, Jesus, where are we going to celebrate the Passover? Now, apparently these disciples haven't yet understood their plan about where they would have their Passover. Now, one of the things that's always an interesting question to ask those who are married is is the differences between your family and your spouse's family. I mean, all families have different traditions. Some do some things one way and some do some things another way. And there are times when this tradition clashes. Like, for instance, Christmas time. Do you open your Christmas presents on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day? I mean, none of it's sinful, none of it's... But, but you're going to clash, you know. And, and mom is thinking, no, we always do it on Christmas Eve. And then we go to grandma's house on Christmas Day. And, and others say, no, 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 no presents until Christmas Day. And there's a clashing there, right? There are clashings about when you go someplace, are you going to be on time or five minutes early or five minutes late? There are those who grow up in families that are always five minutes late and those who grow up in families are always five minutes early. And when it comes, there's a little bit of clash. There are birthdays. Is birthdays a big thing? Is birthdays a small thing? Is Mother's Day a big thing or is Mother's Day a small thing or Father's Day? My wife is smirking because she said, Steve, you've influenced me. I didn't get you anything for Father's Day. And that's good. That's great. Because me, it's like every day is alike. Not a big deal. We go from one to the other. Now, I need to learn, though, that when Mother's Day comes around, like a little note or a card or flowers or something helps because that's more her family and her. Well... One of the clashings taking place in our family, in our, our marriage, is how we take care of the holidays. How far ahead do we plan? Avon's family knows where they're going to celebrate Thanksgiving and Easter and Christmas and all the holidays. They're all right down. My family, well, we'll get together. Who knows where? Well, some, someday, in fact, even like a couple days ahead of time, we've received phone calls. Oh, yeah, we're going to come to your house for, for Easter and we'll be right there. 
it's been a little bit of a clash. Now, I was comforted to see that that Jesus himself didn't reveal about the Passover. These disciples were confused the very night, the very day in which they're going to celebrate the Passover, thinking maybe the Brandon family is a little more biblical. (laughs) Saying, we're going to celebrate the Passover. They didn't exactly know. But Jesus had a plan. His plan was here in verse 18. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, these aren't very clear directions. In fact, these are pretty vague. Jesus didn't say who this man was. He didn't say what he looked like. He didn't say where he lived. He didn't give his address or directions into his house. He just said there was a certain guy. I mean, almost like the disciples supposed to just walk in and know who this guy was. Mark does tell us this man would be carrying a pitcher of water, and that might help a little bit, because in those days men didn't carry pitchers of water so much, more as the woman's job, so that might have been one, but still that's not a big clue. And if I would have been, a, if I would have been one of the disciples, I would have said, you know, Jesus, maybe can you give us a few more details? Who is this certain guy? And I'm sure Jesus just said, well, trust me, just go. How about this? Do you have any reason why Jesus would have been so vague at this point? I mean, that's a surprise. Why is Jesus so so vague? Do you have any thoughts on that? Here's why. Well, it's all determined, but here's what I think. I think it was so Judas couldn't prepare an ambush ahead of time. That's the clue given to us in verse 16. From then on, Judas began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. And what a better opportunity than the Passover meal. They'd all been relaxing, you know, at the meal and just eating their feast and unexpected. An ambush could easily have hit them in the place, but Judas didn't know where they were going. And I think Jesus was very intentional and being so vague so that they might have the Passover in a place that he knew, but which they didn't know, and particularly Judas didn't know, so that this one last time he might have an undivided teaching time with the disciples. Now, certainly he's going to continue to teach them throughout Matthew, but it's always going to be pressed. You know, he's going to be in the garden and they're going to be sleepy. Or, you know, Jesus will, you know, be in the courtyard and be able to just look at Peter. Jesus is going to be on the cross and be able to give final directions, but always going to be under distress. But here's going to be the last time to be able to really teach them in peace. And verse 19 said, The plan worked. The disciples did just as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. They found this man carrying the pitcher of water. They followed him to the house. They went into the house. They said, hey, we're going to eat the Passover here. He said, okay. And they prepared the Passover. Now, the Passover was far more than simply a meal. It's not like peanut butter and jelly, like many of us men might want to cook. You know, it is pretty elaborate and involved. It's a, it's a religious service in which Scripture readings will take place and prayers and, and blessings and symbols and discussions about what took place in the day of Moses and Not only did they have to prepare a meal, but they had to prepare all of the ritual elements for the Passover meal itself. And it would have involved quite a few things. And men, on this Father's Day, you might want to just kind of take note and heart here a little bit that it wasn't only the ladies doing the cooking. It was these servant-minded disciples ready and willing to go and prepare the meal. Well, the last meal of Jesus was the Passover. Second characteristic of his last meal was that it was sorrowful. It was sorrowful. Now, verse 20 picks up 
of the story, when we see that when evening had come, he was reclining at the table with his twelve disciples. Now, at this point, I'm sure that everything was festive. Before it was sorrowful, it, it was festive, right? Food had been shared, scripture had been read, murmur, soft murmur of discussion filled the air, and certainly I, I imagine there were times of laughter and joy, maybe the disciples joking with one another about, you know, what took place or... You know, I can imagine the story about, you know, Thomas joking Peter about, you know, going up to the temple yesterday and tripping on the last step and falling and then getting up like nobody saw him. You know, just kind of joking and laughing and festive and, hey, pass that over and I want some more of this and, hey, this is really good and tell us about how you found this certain guy and all these stories kind of floating around and just a big festive occasion. Having a wonderful time until Jesus dropped the most unpleasant news of the evening. He said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. It was as if the life was suddenly taken out of the party. Suddenly conversation stopped when they realized what Jesus had just said. What was joy and mirth moments earlier turned into somber reality. You know, I remember such an occasion in my house some eight to ten years ago. I think it was on a Sunday afternoon. You know, it's typical of us in our house. We had lots of people over. I can't even remember whether it was family or friends, but we were sitting around the table. I remember where I was sitting. I received a phone call from an old college buddy. For four years, we played soccer together. He was the MVP of our championship team my senior year, and I hadn't spoken with him for quite some time. It was strange that he called. But I was excited. I said, hey, Stump, long time. No, no talk. How have you been? It's good to hear you. And um, the other end of the phone wasn't quite as enthusiastic as mine was. He said he had some sad news for me. He said one of our teammates who played on that team, Bernie Dunn was his name, he'd been brutally murdered. He was researching, I think, up in Alaska for his doctorate, and uh, somehow he was in his bed, and his landlord came up and, and beat him to death. And it took the joy of the moment with me, with the family, and turned it all around. The reality of the phone call began to sink in my heart, and it was a bit difficult to continue on with the joy and the mirth of the, the gathering that was at our house. And I think the news of Jesus here is a, a, a bit similar It wasn't pleasant for the disciples to hear. Certainly they knew what Jesus meant by these words. Jesus Himself had told them on four different occasions that the Son of Man was going to go up and be crucified and die. We looked at all those verses last week. But on top of that, the disciples knew that everyone in Jerusalem knew about Jesus, this great teacher who had stumped and angered the religious leaders of the day. They all knew that the religious leaders, right, there's rumor around town, they really wanted to arrest Jesus and capture Jesus. And, you know, if he had been out west in the olden days, there would have been this big poster all over the place, wanted Jesus of Nazareth. His face would have been plastered up all over the place. And so they knew he was going to die. And they knew that that was coming. But again, the reality sunk deep into their hearts again. But when Jesus said that he would be betrayed... They knew what he was talking about, but I don't think it ever crossed their minds the way in which Jesus would die. He would die because one of his close and intimate disciple friends would hand him over and betray him. A betrayal from within. And the thoughts of their minds of being betrayed certainly was difficult for them to take. They thought about Jesus and how he loves us. 
and how he, he cares for us and has great concern with us and how all of us disciples... But we care for Jesus. We love Jesus. We've been following him for three years. And then to think of one of the disciples actually turning Jesus into the authorities to be killed, it was, it was unthinkable. We're a tight band of followers, right? We're like the three musketeers, all for one and one for all. But, but, but one of them was going to be a betrayer. That's what Jesus said. One of you will betray me. Twelve disciples around the table. One of them. It makes sense in verse 22 then why they were deeply grieved. More and more the reality of the death of Christ was sinking upon their hearts, causing them greater and greater sorrow. And then one of the disciples began to think in his heart. He went, maybe it was John, the one with the tender heart. We don't know. If one of us is going to betray Jesus... It could be me. Now shudder the thought that I would betray my Lord. No, never. Surely not I, Lord, would have come out of His mouth. And then, when that first question was asked, the other disciples would have said, it could be me. And their hearts would start pounding. and, And maybe Thomas, the next one, would have said, surely not I, Lord. And then Andrew, surely not I, Lord. And and Peter and the rest, surely not I, Lord. And I think that's the best understanding of the text. If you have a New American Standard, verse 22, in the margin, it reads this, that one after another asked this question. It's kind of like when you're at a meal and someone says, oh, very good meal. Thanks for eating it. What happens? The next one feels obliged to to say the same thing. Oh, very good meal. Oh, really good meal. Really good meal. And that's, I think, what happened. Even Judas here, verse 25, I think was the last one to say, surely it is not I, Rabbi. Because it would look really bad if Judas didn't say this. Well, to reinforce these words that it indeed is going to be one of you twelve that's going to betray him, Jesus said here in verse 23, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Indeed, it will be one of his disciples. And what a terrifying thought that would be to walk and talk with Jesus for three years, to see His miracles firsthand, to sit in the front row of His sermons, and to get to the point when Jesus started speaking about His familiar stories that He would repeat again and again as a traveling evangelist from place to place. He, they, the disciples, would get to the point where they could repeat His words. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. So intimate were they with His teaching. And then, to hand Him over to the authorities to be killed... It's a terrifying thought. And yet Jesus knew that this is the way it must be. Psalm 41, verse 9. David writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. See, it's one thing to be captured by your enemies. That's bad enough. But it's entirely another thing when it's your friend that turns against you. That is far more hurtful when your friends turn against you. You expect your enemies to come. But when it comes from within, it's very difficult. But you know, this was all of God's plan. Look at verse 24. It says, The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him. Jesus again says that He must die. It must take place. It was written of Him. That was the course that Jesus had to go. 
Even the early church knew that the death of Jesus upon the cross was foreordained from the foundation of the world. In Acts 4, verse 28, they acknowledged, they said, Jesus, right? Your, your death was predestined to occur according to God's purpose. It's clear as a bell that it was written of Jesus. He had to go and he had to die upon a cross. Peter and Paul acknowledged how our salvation was determined before time began. According to the good pleasure of God. Paul's clear about this in the first chapter of Ephesians. Peter's clear about that in the first chapter of his first epistle. And, and, and wrapped up in our salvation, foreordained from the foundation of the world, is the death of Christ from the foundation of the world. The death of Christ wasn't plan B. It was plan A from the beginning. It was the only way for God to save sinful man. And the Son of Man was going the way just as it was written of Him. Now, that would be a difficult thing. It's not like Jesus just blindly accepted this fate. In fact, we will see next time after my vacation, June 17th, July 17th, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus seeking a way out of the pain and suffering of the cross. Seeking a way to let that cup pass from Him that the the cup of the wrath of God might not pour out upon Him. And yet, willingly resigning Himself to the will of the Father, as verse 39 says. And as difficult as the crucifixion was, it was a good thing because it accomplished redemption of all His people. But the betrayal of Judas was a terrible thing. In fact, look at how strong and hard the words of Jesus come here in the last half of verse 24. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now, in verse 25, that man is identified. He's identified as Judas himself. In fact, even look what it says there closely in verse 25. Judas, who was betraying him. He'd already struck the deal with the high priest in verse 15. He was already looking for an opportune time in verse 16. And here he was in verse 25, lying through his teeth. He was betraying him, but he, under pressure, said, Certainly not I. Then Jesus reinforces that it indeed was in. He said, You have said it yourself. Judas, you're the man. Perhaps Judas at this time thought there was maybe some uncertainty. Maybe Jesus didn't really know who it was who was going to betray him. Like Achan. You remember the story in Joshua chapter 6? When Jericho was ransacked and destroyed, they're supposed to burn everything. But what did Achan do? He saw what he wanted and he coveted it and he took it and he took it home and buried it in his tent. And then in Joshua chapter 7, Israel went out to destroy Ai and failed because there was sin in the camp. And there was Achan thinking, well, there's sin in the camp. I'm the one responsible for that sin. I know that. But who's going to know? Who in the world is going to know? And then Joshua, by lot, chose, according to all the twelve tribes, he chose the tribe of Judah. And Achan's heart beat a little bit stronger. And then of all the families in Judah, the Lord chose the family of the Zerahites. Again, his heart starts beating more and more. And of all the families of Zerahites, he came down to Achan's family and pinpointed to Achan. And just as God knew that Achan was responsible for the sin, so also did Jesus know that Judas would be the one betraying him. Judas couldn't get away from this. Try as he might, he couldn't get away from it. And I believe, I'm amazed at the grace that Jesus showed Judas. Even when you read the... um, 
read the other accounts, even in the Gospel of John, it seems like he identified Judas in such a way that he was identified, but even the disciples didn't quite understand even that it was him. When Jesus said, go, what you do, do quickly, the disciples didn't understand that that meant, go, betray me. And maybe in eternity, in the future, we might find out that Jesus even maybe had this conversation somewhat privately with Judas as well. Just showing grace to the one. I know that if I was Jesus, I would have done several things. First of all, I would have split town. I would have gone out of Jerusalem knowing my death was at hand. I wouldn't have, um, you know, just kind of stayed around Jerusalem being a sitting duck. I would have strangled Judas, you know, held him captive so that he couldn't betray me. But Jesus, no. He knew that he needed to go the way it was written of him and let Judas take off and go. And the woe upon Judas was awful. Look at the very last phrase in verse 24. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now, I remember when I was in junior high, once talking, once listening to a teacher talking with me about his process in, uh, in reporting grades to the principal. In junior high, you have more than just a letter grade. We received also conduct grades. You know, conduct such about, you know, Steve participates well in class, or Steve's a joy to have in the classroom, or Steve always comes prepared, or Steve talks too much in class, Steve needs to remember to bring his homework more, you know, even those kind of things. And this teacher was talking about how all of his comments were coded. And so he'd just write down, oh, this student, oh yeah, 25 and 17 and 6, you know, and then boom. So he didn't have to write everything out just to save some time. And he, he told us of a conversation that he had with some other teachers about how there weren't enough negative comments to be able to put down for some of these especially bad and rebellious and disobedient children. And these teachers were joking. And one one teacher said to the other, wouldn't this comment be great? We recommend that Steve be retroactively aborted. Now, that's, that's a terrible thing to joke about, okay? That's why none of you laughed. That's really good. But that's exactly what Jesus said. It's exactly what Jesus said. Look, it would have been better for him not to have been born. It would have been better for him to be retroactively aborted. It would have been better. That's the weight of what was said here. I mean, indeed, Judas committed what I believe is the worst crime that he could ever imagine. He knew Jesus in all of his glory. He knew Jesus full of grace and truth. And saw Jesus walk about blamelessly and heard his wonderful teaching. And yet for 30 pieces of silver, $20, was willing to betray him. When Dante wrote his famous book, The Inferno, describing his understanding of hell, he had various degrees of punishment, right? Like hell is like this sphere. And those who committed least sins were kind of on the outside where it's not so hot. But as you get worse and worse sins, you get closer and closer to the center where the suffering is more and more intense. And do you know who is right at the very heart and center of Dante's Inferno? You guessed it. Judas Iscariot committing the worst sin. It's a good picture of the wickedness of sin. What Dante did, Jesus said it was good for him that that man, if he had not been born. His sin of betrayal is a terrible sin. And I would say, church family, his sin ought to haunt us. This is really a place for uh, application. If it were possible for Judas to be with and around Jesus for three years and then to betray Jesus then certainly it is possible for people to be with 
among and around the church of Jesus Christ for decades, only to find themselves truly to be a Judas. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about being among the company of his followers, all the while pilfering money from the money box, or all the while not letting go of of sin, living in unrepentant sin and among the church body. That's a reality, and that can take place. And I fear, as it did with Judas, that does take place. And my advice and counsel to you this morning, church body, is this. Never presume that it won't happen to you. Be like the disciples. Surely not I. It can't be me, Lord, can it? And what you ought to do is respond this way. Fight the fight of faith. Pray constantly to the Lord that He would strengthen your faith. Say, God, I believe. Help me on unbelief. Help me, God. Help me. And constantly go throughout your life crying out constantly to the Lord for His help and enablement. Because let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And I'm just saying, never think that you can stand on your own, but always be praying to the Lord, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Now, to be sure, the Christian life will have its up and downs. Though none of the disciples wanted to admit that they were the one to betray Jesus, you know, that very night, all of the disciples would be scattered. None of the disciples would stand up and profess to be followers of Christ. Even Peter said in verse 33, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even he denied Jesus three times, as verse 34 predicted. That's the point of verse 31, right? You will all fall away because of me this night, for it's written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. There will be times when you fail the Lord. But here's what it is. It's in the end that your faith will be demonstrated. Though the twelve disciples were scattered, eleven of them were restored again. And eleven of them became pillars of the church of Jesus Christ. They continued in their lives being faithful to the Lord and thereby demonstrated themselves to be children of God. But Judas didn't. He was lost. He expressed some remorse. Chapter 27, verse 3 says, right? He gave back the money, but he was never repentant. He never made things right with Jesus. He went out and hanged himself. See, it's the end that demonstrates where you are. It's not a show. It's the end. It's not three years walking with Jesus. It's the end. Those who endure to the end will be saved. It's not those who grow cold in their love will be saved. It's those who endure. That's the point of the parable of the sower, right? Four different soils. Seed is spread out. Some blossom up. But three of the four wither away. But the one bears fruit, see, in the end. Bearing fruit, enduring to the end. And so I say, church family, fight the fight of faith until the end. That's what Paul's advice to Timothy was. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. And that's my counsel to you. Fight the good fight of faith. At the end of Paul's life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Oh, may this be our testimony. Well, that's the last meal of Jesus. It was the Passover. It was sorrowful. And finally, I want to turn our our attention to the last point this morning. It was meaningful. 
That comes from verses 26 through 30. Let me just read the whole thing here. Verse 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Very familiar words to us, right? We go over these words every four to six weeks at Rock Valley Bible Church when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which appropriately we are going to do at the end of my message this morning. Constantly we hear these words. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It's appropriate for us to be reminded of this so often. In fact, that's what Luke's account says of the scene. Luke 22, verse 19. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Key word. Do this in remembrance of me. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we do it in remembrance of Jesus. And we do it, we do it in remembrance of these verses, and we do it in remembrance of his whole life and what he accomplished for us on the cross. But listen, before the Lord's Supper was the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper was the Passover. And Jesus transformed this ritual that had been celebrated in the Jewish nation for 1,500 years. He transformed it in a night to no longer be the Passover, but to be the Lord's Supper. And you need to reflect a bit of how radical it was for Jesus to say the things that He said in this meal. Now, we don't know everything that Jesus said, but if their Passover meal is a bit like the Passover meal that the Jews celebrate today, which I think is a pretty good assumption, we got some clue. So if you go today, not today, but the 14th of Nisan, whenever that falls, it's like Easter, you know, it falls on different dates in our American calendar. If you would go into a Jewish home and celebrate the Passover with them, by the way, if you ever have that opportunity, go in a second because the gospel is so clear in the Jewish Passover meal. It's amazing. In fact, even Romans chapter 11 speaks about a, a day in which the, the Lord will stir upon Israel. I think before the end, there will be a revival in Israel. And perhaps it's used right through here, the Passover meal, because the Passover meal is so clear about the gospel. But anyway, if you go into this Jewish home, you'll be confronted with a fabulous spread of food and different ornaments all around the table. Everyone have a nice spread of dishes, the cup of wine in front of them. There'll be an empty plate set for Elijah, an empty chair in hopes that maybe Elijah will come back. In the center of the table will be a, a plate with various foods that would, would all be used symbolically to remind Israel of what took place during the time of Moses, the redemption from Egypt. There's, there's a shank bone of the lamb. You know what that represents, right? The Passover lamb that was sacrificed that would be there. Several types of bitter herbs are on this plate. So I say, eat this of these bitter herbs during the service, and they go, oh, no, it's hot, you know? It reminds them of the bitterness of the time back in Egypt. There's this apple-cinnamon mixture. We remind them of the, the mortar that the Jewish people would use to build the bricks for Pharaoh's pyramids. 
At one point, even, they take two pieces of unleavened bread. Of course, the unleavened bread is a, is a symbol to show that they left in haste and didn't have time for the bread to rise. At some point, they take this mortar, put it between them, and kind of eat this mortar, apple cinnamony kind of stuff, reminding them of like bricks. And all of this would do, be done to remind Israel what took place in Egypt. It was a remembrance, the Passover meal was. And during the meal, if you go to a Jewish meal today, they do many things. There's a hubbub of activity and symbolism and, and teaching all around this. You know, they begin by, by lighting a lamp, a, a candle, and saying a blessing. They ceremonially wash their hands. They eat the bitter herbs. The children ask questions of the Father. Why is this night so different? Well, this is the night in which the Lord saved us, delivered us from Egypt The story of the ten plagues is told. They eat the main course of a lamb, which of course is symbolic of the whole sacrifice, the passing over of the people of Israel. And during the meal, they drink four different cups of wine. And each cup describes a different thing. The first cup describes sanctification. The second cup is deliverance. The third cup is redemption. And the fourth cup is acceptance. Right, various times they offer up this cup and they then they say a blessing and then they, they drink of that cup. All symbolic to talk about the different things and that all comes from the scripture, Exodus chapter six, about the four things that God pleads promises to do sanctify them, deliver them, redeem them, and accept them. They take out at times some special unleavened bread and they talk about the bread, how it's like unleavened, and they pass it around and distribute it and all of it, eat of it after a blessing. They say these blessings constantly throughout the meal. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies our lives through the commandments and commands us to eat the bitter herbs. Then they always finish with a hymn. They sing a hymn, even now and today. Next year in Jerusalem. That's what they want. They want to celebrate the Passover next year in Jerusalem. Now, we could spend much time explaining all of the symbolic reference to this. In times past, Ivan, I've hosted a Passover meal, and it really opens your eyes to see everything that this Passover Seder meal is. Everything is laced with symbolism through and through. Everything in the meal reminds the people of of Israel in some way of what God did 1,400 years ago when they were redeemed out of slavery. That's what they do today. Back in Jesus' day, I'm not sure that all of these rituals were all as fully developed back then, but I think there were lots of seeds of many of them. The story of Exodus certainly would have been told. We don't know how. Maybe it's simply reading Exodus chapter 6 through 12. Maybe that's the way it was read. The main course was lamb, whose actual blood would have put, been put on the lintels of the door houses. That would have taken place by command in Exodus 12, 8. Bitter herbs and unleavened bread would have been eaten at this Passover meal where Jesus was. There for certain were herbs. Bitter herbs. Unleavened bread. And throughout the meal, certainly, there would have been all these blessings offered for various different things. Wine being the common beverage of the day certainly would have had some meal to drink and probably had these four cups that they had. And so when Jesus took this bread in verse 26 and offered a blessing, that was like totally normal for the meal. And when Jesus took the cup, that was totally normal for the meal. To take the cup and to say a few words and then to drink it, that was like totally 
exactly what the Jews always did. There would have been nothing unusual. It'd be unusual for you fathers this Father's Day to, you know, take this bread out and say, oh, this is this, you know, take this carrot out and say, this is this. That'd be unusual. But for the Jews of that day, it was totally usual. Massive, totally too much, I think. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. It, it, it was exactly right. That's what it was. But when Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, think about the shock in the minds of the disciples. What were they expecting? Take this unleavened bread and eat of it. It symbolizes the fact that we left in haste. But Jesus like goes according to a different script. He says, take this, this is my body. And they would have been confused and perplexed. Everything had been pointing to Moses, and all of a sudden Jesus points it now to himself. And he takes the cup. He said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The cup, Jesus, don't you remember? That's the thing that God promised that he will do. It's remembrance of them. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. This cup now is in remembrance of me. That's the radical nature of the words in Luke. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus was balking 1,500 years of tradition. When you balk even a few years of church tradition, there is like massive um, revolt against that. People don't like to change. But imagine 1,500 years changing that. It's quite amazing what Jesus did. And yet the church of Jesus Christ has celebrated this throughout all time. At this moment, I really need to stop and deal with A theological issue here that often comes out of these words. There are different views about what Jesus meant when he said, take, this is my body. These are some of the most debated words in all the Bible. What's the significance of the bread? What's the significance of the cup? And the Roman Catholics believe in transubstantiation. In other words, that the the bread and the cup transforms into the literal real body of Christ. Into the literal... Blood of Christ. So much so they believe this that when that takes place, you know what a priest does? He will genuflect to Christ in this blood. That is idolatry, dear people. That is not true. But this is the heart and the soul and the core of Roman Catholicism. You attack this doctrine, you attack the foundation of everything in the church. The Mass is center of it all. I believe that such an understanding is entirely wrong. I mean, think about the passion meal that I described. Everything is full of symbolism. The elements eaten all symbolize something that would take place in the the past. And never would the Jews have thought, like, you know, this mortar that we make, that's really the mortar, right? They never would have thought that the, the, the blood we drink, that's really the lamb. They would never have thought about that. It's difficult to persuade Roman Catholics otherwise. They might argue, this is my body. This is my body. In fact, even there was a debate between Luther and uh, Zwingli, the time of the Reformation, trying to get together to unite some of these different views of the Lord's Supper. And Martin Luther kept banging on the table. He said, hoc est corpus meum. You guys know what that means? This is my body. That's Latin. Hoc est corpus meum. Hoc est corpus meum. 
This is my body, my corpus, corpus mea, my body, Hulk as corpus mea. And Luther was so tied to the Roman Catholic Church that he never could get away from it. He believed not transubstantiation. He got away a little bit. He believed consubstantiation, meaning that the presence of Christ was really there. Nothing was changed in substance, but there was a presence there. And I think that misses it too. On the other extreme, you have Zwingli. His view is it's totally just symbolic, not a big deal, it's just symbol. John Calvin, Reformed position, would believe that there's the real presence of Christ there at the Passover, there at the Lord's Supper. In, in other words, nothing's changed about the elements. They haven't changed in the body and the blood of Christ. But there is something special about when the church gathers and celebrates the Lord's Supper that the Lord meets with us in a special way that He doesn't at other times. Push comes to shove, I think that's the view that I would have. But you have to see that so much of this is talking about symbolic. I mean, that's what would have taken place in the Jewish mind. When the disciples saw this, this is my body, they would have said, oh, this is a representation of what Jesus is going to take. Right? It's going to be broken. It's going to be eaten. Just like Christ upon the cross was broken and shed out for our sins. And I believe when He spoke about the blood poured out for the covenant, that Jesus certainly would have spoken about the Lamb. He would have spoken about how the Lamb was a Passover Lamb that passed over the sins, over the people of Egypt. That's what's going to take place with me. Is that if you believe in me and trust in me, and by put your faith in me, you will receive forgiveness of sins and God will overlook your transgressions. Not really overlooking them. Punishing your transgressions on the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that Jesus would have talked about how this is a perfect picture of how God forgives sin through the shedding of blood. And from now on, it's not the bulls and goats that take away sin. They could never take away sin. But it's me who takes away sin. I'm the one on the cross. When I die, I'm the Passover lamb. That's what he says. My blood is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And that is the message of the gospel. That is the message that comes loud and clear in the Lord's Supper. You want to be forgiven of your sins? Well, believe upon Jesus, the Passover Lamb. Well, this was the last meal of Jesus. Look at verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my kingdom. This is Jesus' last meal. But you know what? We see here even another meal that Jesus alludes to. He's talking about the day in which Jesus will fully consummate His kingdom. Though the Lord's Supper was the last earthly supper He would have, there would be a heavenly supper that He would have. You remember what it's called? The heavenly the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think that's what Jesus is referring to right here. He's talking about that day in which he'll drink it again with all of his family, all of his people, all the ransom church right there. So it's interesting, even here the Lord's Supper is a supper of remembrance to go back and remember what took place. Also, there's an element of the Lord's Supper that looks to the future, the next time Jesus will take of drinking it new in the kingdom of heaven. Looking back to the death of Christ, looking forward to the kingdom of Christ. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, as often as you eat it, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. See, there's always this future element to the Lord's Supper that was taking place here in verse 29. And those who love Christ, 
will be there one day. They will celebrate the Supper of the Lamb with Jesus. And my question to you is, will you? Will you be there? If your heart and soul is trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you will be there. And you will celebrate with us. And this morning, I invite you as we celebrate the Lord's Supper to indeed celebrate with us this morning. But if your faith is not in Christ, if you are not trusting Him for your forgiveness of sins, don't take this supper. In fact, if you're walking now, even in unrepentant sin, don't take of the supper. It's a, it's a blasphemy to God. You will take it in an unworthy manner. And when the Corinthians did that, living, walking unselfishly among themselves, God killed some of the Corinthians. So I ask you now even to think about your sin and deal with it and and trust that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for you for your sins. Why don't you bow your heads. Do a little bit of self-examination as we always do. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And perhaps even now I, I urge you to cry out and call out to the Lord. Realize that Jesus is the Passover. I almost entitled my sermon this morning, The Passover Celebrates the Passover. Because that's what took place. Jesus Himself, the Passover Lamb, takes this Passover feast and transforms it into the Lord's Supper that we ought to celebrate. And we ought to celebrate it with clean hands and pure hearts. I invite you again, just examine your heart. Cry out to the Lord. Confess your sin. Pledge anew. Follow Jesus. Fight the good fight of faith. Right When Satan fires his, his fiery darts, extinguish them in the gospel of grace. Say, no, I've been forgiven. Right, That song we often sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who took away my sin. So when the doubts come, when the trials come, look to Christ. He's your only hope. And so, Lord, I do pray this morning as we eat of this supper, may our worship continue as it has all this morning in a way pleasing and delightful and honoring to you. May this be a time of joy. Lord, these things don't turn into your body and blood of Christ. You're not in with and under these wafers and these cups. Lord, but you do meet us in a real way, in a special way when the church gathers in explicit obedience to these words of Christ to do this remembrance of me. I pray you'd meet with us and stir our hearts again afresh to great love and passion for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the men to come.